I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, welcome along to Writer's Routine. This week, our guest is Paul French. He's just released Murders of Old China on Audible. And as the name suggests, uh, it's an account of unsolved murders in China. And it's been released as 12 episodes, mini audiobooks, each one focusing on a different crime. Now, we talk about what that was like, writing stories to be heard, not exclusively read. Does that change anything about the way that you tell your stories or not? we find out. Also, we learn why to write unsolved crimes, he had to almost become the detective and travel back through time himself. Uh, So we find out where he starts uh, with that process. And we also find out how much he thinks about writing the story as well as solving the crime, almost, Uh, especially as it's in the past. I mean, how does he capture the essence of the early 20th century. The idea that you can convey that moment in history through through writing styles that were popular at that time, I think is is, is sort of interesting. And I, I went, while I was writing these ones, and for some other work I'm doing at the moment, which, which several of these are in the 1940s, and, and I'm working on a project at the moment it's in the 1940s, I've sort of been rereading Raymond Chandler. And I think when you want to write in a certain style, this is an important thing to do. And when you want to get the feel for a period, you have to read those writers of the period who were so good. And, and reading Chandler, you know, really, uh, I feel, connects me to 1940s Los Angeles. And so I'm thinking, you know, that writing style, which is so specific to that time, you know, it's, it's even specific to that moment in American capitalism. If you read Chandler, all the stories are about bumping someone off really, to advance your inheritance, right? It, it's like, I, I, I don't want to kill someone in order to take over their casino or their drug business, which would be sort of another period in time. This is like, I need to bump off the relative who's got all the money so that I inherit and never have to work a day in my life. Loads more just like that on the way with Paul French in this week's Writer's Routine. Yes. Welcome along. My name's Dan. This is Writer's Routine, the show where we take a sneak peek inside the working day of some of the most successful authors around. We try and steal some of their scheduling secrets, find out what makes them tick. And I've got a special one for you this week because it's just a little bit different. It's not about a book. See, I mean, it's still about stories, but not a physical book. It's about real life stories, but real life stories that have been parlayed up, specifically written for audio. 
Paul French has released Murders of Old China on Audible. It takes 12 crimes and focuses on one in each episode of the series. Now, Paul goes into detail for us on on one of those episodes, doesn't give too much away, but he tells us how he found about the crime, then what he did to almost to try and solve it whilst writing a story at the same time, because it's a fascinating way of working for him quite different to the things that we've had before on the show because we have spoken to quite a few crime writers uh, all with amazing ways of working all unique all completely different but i think i'm going to be proven wrong on this obviously but i think um, this is the first true crime that we've had on the show and as a writer and a storyteller surely that changes the approach so often when i speak to crime writers i'm fascinated by the moment that they discover who the killer is. And when you're writing true crime, either you always know who the killer is, or you're never going to find out at all. So surely that must change the way that you tell stories. It's not the first time that he's told Chinese true crime uh, either. He lived in China for 20 years working as a journalist and a book reviewer and is known for his work Midnight in Peking, uh, which was a New York Times bestseller. Uh, It won a ton of prestigious crime book awards and then that led to him uh, doing two and a half years worth of research for the new one, Murders of Old China. It's a really fascinating one this week. We'll hear loads about it. Also, we'll get another writing routine from history uh, with Mason Curry, our friend of the show. That's on the way after we dive into it with Paul French. And we start, as always, with what he sees around him in the place where he sits down to write. I don't see anything around me very much because um, I tend to look straight at a a wall um, and and work that way. I work mostly actually in the London Library in St. James's, which is the oldest uh, private member's library in the world. And it's a real gem. It's beautiful. If you go to the front of it, it looks like a tiny building, but it opens up and and meanders and wanders around. It has one of the second largest collection after the British Library, and it's a fantastic place to work. It is totally silent. Um, It is full of other writers to keep you nice and competitive. It's got all the resources you want, and unlike just about every other club in that area of St. James's, it hasn't got a bar. (laughs) Now, this is interesting. This is the second time I've heard about this library in probably as many weeks now. I might get them to sponsor the show. Um, Can you tell me just a little bit more about it, um, uh, about why you go there, why you need that solitude, uh, why you just can't work from home? Well, I can sometimes, but I like the routine. I like the idea that I can get up, go somewhere, sit there and work. And it's quiet, and uh, I don't get disturbed. Um, but also, um, the work I do is non-fiction writing. Um, it requires constantly me dragging books off shelves to look at maps, to look at sources, to look at old memoirs. The London Library is somewhere that has a large collection of the sort of thing I want, which is you know old sort of long-forgotten British explorers that wandered through Western China and Tibet or something like that that I want to look at. Um, membership there also gives you access to JSTOR and the other online academic papers and all the newspaper libraries that are online and all of that stuff. So bundling all of that into one subscription and giving me somewhere warm and, and, de- and delightful old building to work in, in the middle of central London is fantastic. Have you got your own space there, a place where you regularly go, this is my area? Well, I think the London Library is fascinating because people do have their own spaces. And... Um, 
some famous people are able to maintain their spaces because people know who they are and, and sort of stay away from them. They also have something called the writer's room, which I personally uh, refuse to go and work in because I think the moment you start saying, I'm a writer, yeah. and so therefore <laughs> I work in the writer's room, um, you, you've kind of you know, gone down a rabbit hole that I don't want to go down. Um, but but it, is a, it, is, it is a wonderful resource, and considering it's in central London, I think it works out at about... 500 quid a year, about 40 pounds a month. And so if you want a workspace and somewhere to pop in and out, plus, of course, you've got borrowing privileges and all the online and everything. I think it is, it's one of the great sort of hidden bargains for writers as a, as a resource if you're in central London. So aside from being in the, in the, right, in the library and in the various places that, that you find yourself there, is, is there anything else that you constantly have with you? Or is it just you and your laptop? That's all you need and a few books that you pull as and when? Yeah, no, I mean, I am... That, that is it for me, really, just a notebook um, and, and, and a laptop and, and pulling books off the shelves whenever necessary. And also at home, I have quite a, my, all of my work is about China and Chinese history, so I have quite an extensive library myself of texts that I keep going back to. But um, no, I don't find I need uh, much else uh, than that. And I'm, not, I'm, I'm someone who's fairly kind of, I don't have a very cluttered desk. I just like to get up, start working. I, I do try that thing of hitting 2,000 words a day. Um, not, not great words necessarily, but at least 2,000 words a day on something, a book or an article or a piece I'm writing or, or, or some, maybe, maybe something that will happen not for a few years, but is still there. Well, well, you're starting to get into the point of the show. You mentioned routine earlier. We've got the 2,000 word hope. Uh, talk to me through your writing routine then. The moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed on a day when you are sat mm. down to write, how does it look? Well, my, my routine is very much, I know what I'm writing about, so it's really about research and then writing. So I do have, you know, a good portion of my day is spent just reading old newspapers, old magazines, reading old books, memoirs, looking around, using the great tool of Google and all the others to find things. I mean, you can't, I don't, the sort of work I do, you can't answer totally with Google, but, you know, working through those, those sort of sources, uh, my work involves working in several languages as well, which which which, which takes means it takes a little bit more time, because however well you are with a language, it's very hard to read as fast in another language as you do in your native language, um, and and then start writing. So I tend to sort of uh, start the day with some research, then write, then probably go back and do some more research that hopefully adds to what I've written. So I do the sort of first edit on the on the day's work and then and then that's kind of it and it's cocktail hour what time do you start what time is cocktail hour <laughs> well now i normally try and get going by about 10 o'clock in the morning it <laughs> doesn't sound great does it but like yeah i try to do that um and then i'll try to uh, work through to at least six um you know somewhere on something um but quite often you know if, if the mood strikes and everything's flowing and, and the wind's in the right direction and the gods are looking favorably upon me i mean i'll just carry on till late I found that when I was a student and when I was younger you know doing essays and things like that I was always one for sort of slobbing around during the day um, and then working at night and I, and I think you know if um, if the family goes away or I'm left on my own for a bit I fall back into that routine very easily of sitting around all morning and then having lunch and then after lunch getting into it and working till quite late at night but you know the the, the sort of demands of daily life um, normally mean that you have to keep a, a fairly rigid schedule. And if you don't, I think you just never get anything done. So that was back when you were a student. That's where that kind of came from. The seeds mm. were planted. In, in all your years writing now, what have you learned about how you work best mm. that's helping you tell your, tell your latest story? Well, I find 
the, the one thing I learned very early on was not to start at the start and work from there. Okay. Um, the idea that you start a book, whether it's fiction or non-fiction, um, and that you start with, you know, or, or biography as well, which I've sort of dabbled in in the past, is the, the idea that you start with, you know, day one of the story and then just keep writing all the way through to you write the end just, just doesn't work. Um, and that you'll hit block, you'll hit points where you can't get past a certain plot twist or you can't get past a certain piece of knowledge you need to acquire. Um, and then the, the book gets shelved, it goes in the bottom drawer and it gets forgotten about and you get excited about something else and move on. So I find that... Um, once I've got the idea of the plot, then I think plot is really important for nonfiction as well. It's something, uh, you know, people starting to write nonfiction don't think about, but people who write fiction obviously think about plot from the start. Um, you can then start jumping about in chapters. So, you know, a project like the one I've just done for Audible has 12 chapters, 12 different stories. I don't start one and write it through to the end, and then the second one I tend to jump around for bit for bit. Piece of information has got me excited. Uh, something has come to me that really needs to be in that story, a, a, a character trait or a plot twist. So I find that I'm jumping around all the time. And actually now I jump from project to project and book to book. And eventually I get to a point where a book is you know, sort of over the halfway mark and then I have to put everything else aside and get it finished. But jumping around I think is great because it keeps the creativity going, it keeps the block going. Writer's block is usually only on the story you're working on at the time, not on writing in general. Well, getting going, of course, is always is always tough. You know, I mean, you, you often lie there in bed at night, I think, having great ideas um, and thinking, this is wonderful. I can't wait to get started in the morning. And for some reason, when you get up in the morning, it, everything doesn't seem quite as great as it did the night before. So you've got to sort of rev yourself up and um, and get yourself back in the mood. And that's where I think the the 2000 word thing is useful. Because if you open a file you're working on or a new chapter or whatever and you just start writing, don't worry too much about whether it flows in a linear sense or anything. Just get the words down on the page, the ideas, some turns of phrase you may have thought of, a plot twist that you need to, in, to, to get down. You know, if you find yourself by lunchtime having got 1,200, 1,500 words down, you feel like you're suddenly having a productive day. And that, of course, spurs you on. I'd like to try and make you quite analytical. I mean, you are clearly anyway, but you mentioned earlier how you're pretty much exclusively non-fiction and you jumping around doing a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit there, which I think is quite tough for a fiction author to do. What do you think is the main difference between... Again, this is quite a hard question to answer. What do you think is the main difference between the mind and the way of working between a non-fiction and a fiction author? Well, I think non non-fiction authors of course, start from, from some sort of story. They, they have, whether it be a historical piece or a political issue we're thinking about at the moment or, or a biography of someone's life, you, you have that story. And so there's always aspects of that story that you could write about. You know, I, I found, and, and you're reading very, very widely to understand that person. You know, if you're writing a biography, you're reading about what the world was like in that part of the world that person was, when they were born, when they went to school, you know, all, all of that. And so there's always something coming to you. Um, and your reading will, will, will reflect that. And I've found when I work on biography, um, and, and a lot of what I write is about real people, so there's always an element of biography there, you tend to have read something about, you know, what they did in the war or something, you know, and then that's what you want to write about. And then during that same day, you may read something about, you know, the sort of school they went to and, and the contemporaries at school. So then you jump onto that. So, so 
with non-fiction, I think there's always something that you're reading about, a historical moment, a, a, a place that, that gives you inspiration to move forward. Whereas with fiction writers, they are, they are often um, having to plot very heavily and move through that plot. So, so a lot of this isn't going to work for fiction writers. Although I do know fiction writers who, of course, are working on two or three books at a time and so can jump from from point to point and I think as well people who work on series which in crime is very crucial are often thinking two or three books ahead and making notes about book three while they're writing book one what do you think draws one author into one field non-fiction and another author into another well I think non-fiction writers often don't start from writing they start from a, an academic or, or or a hobby interest in some way so my own background was was as in China studies. It was to do with the Chinese language. It was to do with, you know, studying Chinese, becoming a sinologist, working in China, um, and then deciding that you'd really like to write books about that. Uh, first of all, non-fiction history books, and then deciding you'd like to find another way into Chinese history and thinking true crime might be an interesting way of doing that. Um, so, so you're usually drawn by your subject uh, into... It into um, what you're writing. Whereas, of course, fiction writers, are, I, I assume, are, are drawn more by hopefully having enjoyed reading and having enjoyed uh, fiction and um, wanting to tell, tell their own stories. And, of course, increasingly nowadays, so much fiction is about people really writing about themselves. It's sort of sort of thinly disguised autobiography. Um, um, and that, that's a trend we're going through at the moment that, that, that people seem to want to read more about themselves rather than look for other worlds out there. But um, these things go in cycles. So. And lastly, on this rather philosophical angle on the difference between fiction and non-fiction, and the reason why is because, I'll be honest, I've done 80 episodes of this show, more now. Um, the majority is fiction because I find it hard to speak to non-fiction authors mm. because it's a completely different angle of the way you do things. It's yeah. your there's much more in research than it is, you know, fiction authors can sit down, they can the research is all pretty much in their head. Yeah. In your history of writing crime non-fiction mm. have you ever been inspired to write fiction crime well you know i'm a great reader of fiction literature and particularly uh, crime fiction genre i love reading it so when i sort of started to write my own non-fiction I, I sort of started very early on to go into literary non-fiction so i think in terms of getting the definitions right in my head literary non-fiction is where you take a non-fiction story, you research the hell out of it, and then you try and tell that story using all of the techniques, styles, and tropes of literary fiction. Um, in my case, a kind of noir-style, hard-boiled-style crime writing style of the sort of 30s and 40s, which also happens to be the period I write about, so I think it's appropriate. So literary non-fiction for me is non-fiction written in a literary style, but with no invented characters, places, clues, or in my case, actually dialogue as well. I don't do invented dialogue. So um, that seems to me very important, as opposed to creative non-fiction, which is like a lot of books that are very popular at the moment, where you take the life of someone or a historical event and you creatively recreate that event in a fictional way. Um, so I think literary nonfiction is a very interesting way of getting to, to readers because, you know, if you're the sort of person who thinks, oh, you know, I'm not really sure I want to read a true crime or I'm not really sure I want, like, a Chinese history lesson. Um, didn't want one at school, don't want one now. Um, you know, but 
oh, bit of literary non-fiction. You know, I kind of, I like reading James Elroy. I like reading, I don't know, Alan First or someone like that. Maybe I'd like to read this. And for a lot of my readers I know, uh, the fact that it's true is a sort of bonus. And in fact, they don't even read it thinking, oh, this is a real person. They pay very little attention to the photographs and the footnotes that crop up and things like that. They read it as fiction. Other people are more non-fiction readers, and they read it and hopefully appreciate that it's perhaps more of a stylized read, which if you're reading for pleasure, um, uh, hopefully um, encourages you to, 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 to read faster, more, and, 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 and have a, a pleasurable experience reading. So with the way you write, why does a reader keep turning the page, do you think? Well, I think that, um, you know, I, I am taking a true story, whether it be a murder or a story of gangsters or, or, or story of a, 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 a murder investigation, which, which this new Audible project is. Um, I am trying to use all of the uh, tricks and uh, um, plot twists that you would have in crime fiction. But obviously, they're the real investigations of the story. So they are the real discoveries the police made. They are the real lies that the, uh, the witness is told or the murderer is told. They're, they're the real events. And so I base things around that. It's very easy to write fiction. Well, not very easy to write fiction, but it would be very easy in fiction to, to sort of invent for yourself an autopsy report. But in the work I do, you know, if there's an autopsy in the scene, it will be because I have managed to obtain the autopsy document which, you know, given that I usually write about the sort of 1930s and 40s is in China, is quite difficult. Um, but, um, you know, there, there are ways of writing that that, that, that will help the, um, you know, that will keep the, the audience guessing all the way to the end. Whereas maybe in a true non-fiction one, you would just sort of announce who the murderer was at the start because your aim is not to, is not to grab the reader in uh, through through plot it, it's it's to grab the reader with with, with, the, with the, the fact that it is a true story i was very lucky that um, the people at audible were very keen on a book i did uh, nearly 10 years ago now called midnight in peking which was the true story of an uns at the time i would argue unsolved murder of an english girl in beijing in 1937 which is right this is where the chinese history comes in which is right on the eve of the Japanese attack on China that really launches the Second World War, or the invasion of China. Now, that, that was a very interesting historical moment for me and one that I felt more people in Britain, the US, where we don't really do Chinese history in schools, should, should sort of appreciate that moment. And the, the, the longevity of the foreign presence in China, whether colonial or, or as business people, diplomats and so on. So it, it was a good story to tell. It resonated very well with audiences. It did very well. I was very fortunate with, with that book. Um, and since then, I also written about Shanghai at that period, which is the sort of more jazzy, you know, gangstery sort of Shanghai of everyone's imagination, trying to get to the, the reality of that. And and um, Audible, those are done well as as, as books, as e-books, and, and as audio books. So they asked me really if I had anything else, and I said, look, you know, there's lots of old murder cases from that time in China that involve foreigners and Chinese that tell us a lot about Chinese history in the first half of the 20th century that explain partly why the China that we all encounter in one way or another now um, exists the way it does. Um, and I think there's also a lot to learn on these cases because no one's ever gone back and investigated them because, of course, after 1949 and China becoming a communist country, no one was interested in, in what has happened before. So it'd be interesting to look at them so again, kind of, you know, history lessons by stealth, hopefully. Um, but also, uh, they were ones that perhaps, and I'm sure lots of non-fiction writers have this, that they're stories that 
weren't really quite big enough or stupendous enough to make a 400-page book, but they're good, concise, informative uh, murder investigations and murder stories on their own. And in most cases, I have some new piece of information that sheds some sort of light on just how much uh, you know, people are corrupt and how much people lie and how many miscarriages of justice there were at that time. So therefore, if you like true crime, if you're interested in China at that time, these 12 stories will all be instructive, educational and entertaining, I hope. Is it hard for a writer, when you're talking about a country as massive as China to try and get across its essence in a, in a 400-page non-fiction story in 12 or, uh, episodes. How do you go about trying to translate this, this massive culture, this massive identity, all these characteristics into one drip-fed you know, uh, little package that I can understand? Yeah, it's really difficult. Um, when I did Midnight in Peking, uh, which of course is set, as I say, right at that time of the Japanese invasion of China, and people think of the Second World War, you know, here in the UK we think of the Second World War as 1939, starting in, the Americans think of it as Pearl Harbor, 1941. But for the Chinese, it started in 1937 and didn't end until 1945. They, they fought the war longest, uh, you know, and hardest in a sense. So, um, uh, and trying to get that early 20th century history, which is really... You know, in the early years of the 20th century, the, the Boxer Rebellion and the collapse of the 267-year-old Qing dynasty into a republic, Dr. Sun Yat-sen, uh, you know, that then descended into warlordism and people are like, what the hell are warlords? You know, these are men with private armies that run territories the size of Western European countries, uh, you know, and, and China is really fragmented. There's really no notion of China as a unitary whole at that point. Then, you know, Chiang Kai-shek manages to unify the entire country. And just as he does that, the Japanese invade. And, we ha and China goes through, what, eight years of total war against Japan. Comes out of that straight into a civil war between the nationalists of Chiang Kai-shek and the communists. They lose, go to uh, Taiwan in 1949. The People's Republic of China is founded. And then, of course, China's history becomes a whole different trajectory of Maoism and the Cultural Revolution through to, through to today's sort of renaissance of, of, of the Chinese economy. So it's a hell of a lot of history. Um, and, of course, it goes back to the opium wars of the 19th century and British and American attempts to sell opium into China and therefore the, what the Chinese would call the century of humiliation by the foreigners. The idea of places like Shanghai and Tianjin as open international treaty port cities. Um, this is all, there's a lot of history there that leads to understanding issues that we now see every day about China's rising economic power, China's apparent bristliness about its borders, what's going on in Xinjiang, what's happening in Hong Kong. All of these things go back to that era. Um, and so trying to sneak the history in in a way that's readable is very, very difficult. In Midnight in Peking, I tried it, and I'd say of the several thousand reviews on Amazon, I'd say that 50% say, great book, but just not quite enough history. And the other 50% say, great book, but a little bit too much history, right? So, and it's very difficult to know where to start. You know, is it as, uh, I forget which one, one of the, uh, General de Gaulle, I think, once said, um, you know, all you need to know about China is it's a big country with a lot of people. Right. So, I mean, when you start writing about China, are you starting from a position where people think it's a big country with a lot of people? Or is there more, do they understand more Chinese history 
what are they what are that what are their perceptions of china and the chinese it's very difficult and this would be true if you were writing about russia or the second world war or the monarchy or any subject really where, where does where does the average reader's knowledge level start um and if you can try and work that out, then hopefully you're not completely bamboozling people from the start and getting them to put the book down or switch, switch the uh, you know, machine off. Um, and, and where are you just sort of being boring because you're just telling people things they know? Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Very quickly, before we get back into it with Paul, I thought I'd give you a little flavour of the fantastic writers that we've got coming up in the show over the next few months. Uh, We will chat to a history expert who writes mystery stories in the 14th century. Uh, Also, we'll speak to an upcoming Chinese author who has written a debut piece of literary fiction that critics and and certainly her publishers are thinking might just be the next big thing, like Sally Rooney levels of fame. Uh, And we'll also speak to the three-time British beer writer of the year. And I'm certainly excited for that one. (laughs) Just reading back, uh, looking through those those guests, it really does hammer home... (laughs) how ridiculous and wide-ranging this show is. If you're excited for those and you want to show your support for the show, help us bring you episodes as often as we can, I'd love for you to pledge to us over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. It's the only way that you can get little bits of show merch on there as well by doing that. Just donate what you can. A dollar or so a month really goes a long way uh, for us making the show, bringing it to you uh, as frequently as possible. If you've learned anything in the almost 90 episodes now that's helped the way that you tell your stories and write down your ideas Uh, i'd love you to support the show as a little means of thank you uh, by firing um whatever you can spare over to patreon.com forward slash writers routine 
It's time for a quick writing routine from history now uh, with friend of the show, new friend of the show, a very good friend of the show because he kind of gave me the idea for the whole thing, Mason Curry. He's dropping in every now and then uh, with a snippet from his brand new book. It's a distinguished day uh, from the new one, Daily Rituals, Women at Work. The playwright Lillian Hellman paid fanatical attention to her dialogue, reading it out loud to herself every night before bed and again every morning before she resumed writing. She wrote most of her plays on a 130-acre farm, about 90 minutes north of New York City, where she also raised chickens and sold their eggs, swam and fished in the eight-acre lake, bred standard poodles, and hosted friends for long visits, although she expected her guests to entertain themselves most of the time. Quote, My friends come to stay and amuse themselves any way they want to, Hellman told a reporter in 1941. We meet at meals. When I write, I still leave plenty of time around the meal hours. Work three hours or so in the morning, two or three hours in the afternoon, and start again at 10 p.m. and work until one or two in the morning. Coffee and cigarettes kept her at her desk. According to a 1946 newspaper profile, Hellman drank 20 cups of strong coffee and smoked three packs of cigarettes a day. That's just a little sneak peek of what's in his new book. There's loads more daily rituals just like that. Uh, Interesting and kind of eccentric and and really triumphant writing routines from history in the new one. It is Daily Rituals, Women at Work. If you want to find out more about that, uh, you can listen to the whole chat that we did with Mason, which is a couple of episodes back now. So you can find that uh, in your feed and you can have a listen at writersroutine.com. Right, let's get back into it with Paul French. Uh, His new Audible series, Murders of Old China, is out right now. And in this half, we we talk about the storytelling of it. We know how he works, how his day looks, the fact that he he escapes to the library uh, to research and, and to get his tales down. But I'm really wondering about the storytelling of this. Because it needs to be, you know, many fold, doesn't it? It needs to be accurate. It needs to allow you as, as a listener, not so much a reader, but to plonk yourself in old China uh, in the early 20th century. And it has to keep you listening, much like a story would have to keep you turning the pages. So how much does he think about that? How different is it writing something to be listened to rather than to be read? Also, we talk in detail about one of the crimes that he covers, and we get back into it um, with right at the start of the process, really. I mean, when Audible decide that they want a certain amount of stories, unsolved murders from history, how does he figure out what he's going to write about and then where he starts? To be fair to Audible, they didn't ask for 12. They just said, um, what do you think you've got? And I think I, in order to, um, you know, try and impress them, said, I've got 12 uh, murders that we really need to investigate. However, I did have quite a few, and I, and I had been looking at them all over the years and reading around them and thinking of writing them up as, you know, magazine pieces or putting them together in a collection or something like that. But I thought they could work, given that there was new information and there was a lot of history to unpack, that we could put them together in sort of chronological order and sort of take the, take the listener through, um, well, you know, depending on who you are, whether or not you'd just like to hear 12 true t- true crime stories from the first half of the 20th century in an interesting and fascinating place, sort of extraordinary times, extraordinary crimes kind of thing, you know, or whether you are someone who's very interested in Chinese history and would like to hear more of that, but true crime is actually an interesting way of explaining the troubled relations between foreigners and Chinese, the, 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 the issues of what was going on in the Chinese government, 
civil wars and the rise of the communists, gangsters in China and so on, the opium trade, um, things like these issues. Um, hopefully, you, you know, there are all sorts of people who would like to hear these things, as well as, you know, the true crime crowd who just like the idea that, you know, what we thought was a crime with a murder solved actually turns out not to not to be the case that that, that that something went on that should have led to a mistrial or or someone got away with murder so if you've got all of these groups the people who are really interested in china the people that are really interested in 20th century history the true crime people um you know uh hopefully um you're hitting quite a lot of bases there and 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 quite a lot of people who want to listen to what you say so and it was a really great opportunity for me to go back and look at these cases and use all of the resources and all of the information that I'm gathering every day and sort of, you know, recycle that into, uh, you know, it sounds terrible to use the word, but sort of a product that sort of takes lots and lots of research and puts it all together in, in a way that, um, you know, will hopefully attract a lot of people in, in, into my world that I write about. Would we be able, do you recall the stories of one of the episodes pretty well. Yeah, sure. Um, without massively spoiling. But I'm just, I think the best way for us to understand how you have written one of these episodes mm. would be for us to unpack one of them. Yeah. Um, I understand because you said you didn't work in it solidly, you know, you didn't do one episode a day, you were kind of flitting in and out. Mm. That it might be a bit of a composite, but let's try it out. So, say for one of your episodes, when you've got the idea of yeah. what, unsolved crime you are going to tell how do you start where's the first place you look for your research so invariably i look for a, a, a crime that's interesting i spend a lot of time reading old newspapers anyone who's listening to this now will know that reading the newspapers at the moment on a daily basis is an extremely awful uh, thing to do um, and so you know losing yourself in the newspapers from the early 20th century when things were just as awful but you know they're not being awful to me right <laughs> now um seems seems nice and i come across stories and, and I decide they're interesting. So I'll give you one example. It's a story from Hong Kong, and it's an interesting one. It is, of course, during the, in, around the time of the First World War, when Hong Kong was, of course, a British colony. Um, and uh, it's about the, the most remote police station in Hong Kong, which is out on Lantau Island, and at the time was several days' uh, journey from what, what we would now know as central Hong Kong. Um, and there had to be a police station out there because there were any numbers of smugglers and pirates along the South China coast that maybe wanted to attack the villages there, which were fishing villages, salt uh, villages as well. They produced salt. Um, and there was taxes to be paid on those that the police needed to investigate. At that time, at this lonely police station, there was one European officer, a British uh, police officer, and all of the men under him that served under him, the half dozen men under him were Sikh, the, the, which is, again is a, an interesting part of history that within places like Shanghai and Hong Kong and Singapore, the British recruited Sikhs from British India to serve as uh, policemen. Many of them had military backgrounds, tall, big guys, I mean, you know, naturally suited to policing. Anyway, it's a reasonably famous case in Hong Kong that um, one day one of the policemen who had been accused of a little bit of minor theft uh, and, and who was probably going to get a, a blot on his copybook uh, for his career, um, shot and killed his commanding officer and then attempted to shoot and kill the commanding officer's wife and child, who managed to escape. He then went back to his barracks, wrote several letters, and then shot himself. So it was a murder and then a murder-suicide. Um, this had to be investigated. Now... It's quite a well-known story in that um, at the time, um, 
all of the blame was put upon um, uh, the Sikh officer. So at the time of the investigation, it was considered that perhaps uh, the loneliness of the uh, posting, um, the isolation of the Sikh officers away from their culture and away from women, uh, their wives or girlfriends, um, and and they and you know well, at the time they would have talked of the natural temperament of the non-British person was to go mad to to create mayhem, havoc, uh, run amok, and shoot their officer. That was the decision at the time, and that really wasn't challenged very much at the time. Later interpretations of that have been that the murder was probably the result of pent-up frustration due to institutional racism within the Hong Kong police at that time. Now, that, that I think, is part of what happened on that day in 1918. Um, but when I went back, so, so what I do is I try and build that case up as procedurally. This is what happened on the day of the crime. This is what happened on the day of the murder. This is then who investigated it. This is the, the detective's findings. This is the commission of inquiry that was held. Behind that, we have what his surviving wife thought had happened that day, what the other police officers thought had happened that day um, uh, of the murder, um, and also what the newspapers reported of it, what they thought of it. And you look at all of that. But what I then try to do is go slightly wider. And nowadays, of course, because we can gather so many documents together uh, that would have been very difficult in 1918, I was able to look at lots of different things. And what I started looking at were district officers' reports, which are long lost and dusty in the files at Kew, the National Archive of Britain. These were the British men who had very good language skills, who uh, worked out in the remote parts of Hong Kong, um, adjudicating local disputes uh, within the villages as colonial officers. And they would write long reports back, not just about the disputes that they were adjudicating, but also about local conditions. They tended to be very educated men who were interested in the history of Chinese temples, religions, cultures, food practices, ancestor worship, all sorts of things. They didn't have much to do in the evening, so they would write these long, voluminous reports, which really weren't that useful for the colonial administration. Um, and, of course, have just gone into the archives and are very useful for the historian. And what, when I read through all of those, which weren't read at the time of the commission in 1918 that looked into the murder... There was lots of work there that had been done by the district commissioners who were not part of the police force and probably didn't talk to each other about gambling in the local villages and policemen being lured in, Sikh policemen being lured in to um, gangster control, triad controlled gambling operations and ending up owning, owing large debts, which became problematic to pay. Uh, problematic for their careers in terms of being in debt to local gangsters and also a matter of shame uh, for them. And that this may have played a part in the whole build-up of what was going on. So now, with the ability to look at a much wider range of documents and call them all up to my desk in the London Library, either electronically or in old reports or from the archives, I could see a very different picture emerge of the lives of these policemen in this remote police station in um, Taiyo, in, in Lantau Island, in Hong Kong, um, than was represented at the time. You know, hopefully getting away from the prejudices about Sikh, Sikh officers, getting away from just looking at it as an institutional racist issue, um, which, of course, is partly part of the story, but not the entire story. So looking at a wider range of documents, a wider range of causes that could lead to this, we can see that, you know, the terrible events that happened on that day you know, had multiple causes that weren't being addressed by 
you know, the, the police, the colonial government or the local communities. So you're acting pretty much as a detective for a case that happened 100 years ago. Can you talk me through the, the, the thought process of why you then look at these old reports from these officers? If I'm doing this, I'm probably not looking at that. No, what, so I, why are you doing that? So, so I think that this is where for non-fiction writers, you know, coming, you know, I'm in my world, which is Sinology. So I'm very, when I look at where this happened, I think to myself, well, hang on, over the years, I've read a lot of interesting things about those villages and the cultures in those villages. Um, but but I'd, never, I'd never connected the, the police that police those villages with the cultures. I just thought, well, yes, I know a lot of those villages were hotbeds of smuggling and, and tax evasion and gambling um, and that there were police there, but I'd never really connected the two. But I thought those documents would be interested in I'd be interested in reading those. Of course, looking back at it, I, I know that the general perception of the Indian officers in the Hong Kong police by the Anglo uh, officers in the police was that they were slightly unstable and prone to sort of, you know, flying off the handle and committing these kind of murders because that's what people like that do. That was the attitude at the time. Then we have a later attitude that's more nuanced that looks at institutional racism, that looks at discrimination within a colonial police force and so on, and the troubled relationships between the British Indian officers, not just in their British commanders, but also the Chinese people that they were policing. So there was a lot of different problems there. Um, so so that's I, I knew all of that was going on, but I still thought there must be more. So I look at the what's going on in the village at the time, and I think that you know that that was something no one had done before. They had just sort of said, you know, it must be this or it must be that, and hadn't really looked at the thing in a in a three three hundred and sixty degrees. I worked it out that, you know, if you did about 5,000 words per story, that would give you about half an hour of radio time. And how much are you thinking about the fact that this isn't going to be read, it's going to be narrated? Uh, well, I'm, yeah, I am definitely thinking of that because this was not the first time I'd written something for narration, but it was the first time I'd, I'd started out a project from scratch, uh, knowing that it was going to have to be read out, which again for nonfiction throws up all sorts of problems and for the sort of work I do throws up all sorts of problems, which is in a book, to go back to the example I was talking about, about Hong Kong, I mean, just in the way I've described it to you there, I've said a lot of things about that people may not be aware of, that Sikh men were brought from British India to serve as policemen, that, that, that Hong Kong was a colony, that there were these dispute, that there were these faraway um, islands in Hong Kong, that there were district officers. All of these things may not, may not mean much to people, right? But in a book, of course, I'd have a time to go off on a slight side tangent, which will lose you in an audio uh, environment. And also I've got footnotes, and end notes and things like that, you know, that would allow me to, to point out various little bits and pieces that may or may not interest you. You have the option to go and look at my boring footnote, which gives you a little bit of a historical background, or just ignore it and plow on with the story, you know. So, um, yeah, you do have to think about it a lot. Um, and I also think when you're dealing with um, a, a story, the, the one I'm using, for example, which has European names, uh, Indian, Sikh Indian names, uh, you know, very confusing with so many people. Every, every one of the officers, by the way, was called Singh. The surname was Singh. Uh, family name was Singh. But of course, um, they weren't related. It's just a very common name in the Sikh community. So um, you know, that could, and Chinese names, of course, for people who are unfamiliar with Chinese, all of that can get very confusing when you can't flip back a couple of pages and, and look, you know, that. So you've got to think about how you do all of that. In a sense, it's procedural, but I've got to 
similarly to a book, sow the seeds, if you like. Someone once mentioned, called it the um, sheep's droppings. It's like the trail of sheep's droppings that go up. You know, there's the field and within it are the sheep's droppings and they lead you to the sheep. Um, you've got to kind of have those sheep's droppings so that you don't get to the end of the story and go, oh, well, how could I have possibly known that, right? I mean, that's a very unsatisfying crime book. Right? So you've got to build that in um, and you've got to try and, you know, not lose your reader, uh, listener, reader, listener, same thing, but you've got to not lose your listener completely so they just drift off and just decide why am I listening to this for I can't remember what happened I don't know who he's talking about you know. with your 5,000 words let's say for instance how much do you know of what words they are going to be before you actually sit down to start writing well I don't really I mean I tend to with, with crimes I tend to start procedural so I start with the crime that occurred um, you know in a very conventional sense a crime occurs detectives are called they investigate the crime then when I've got that down on paper, I tend to go back and I then tend to analyse what the hell do I think is going on here, right, really? This is what we know from the newspapers and the documents and the court, report, court reporting of the time. But what do I really think is going on given all the other stuff that I've got, right, um, that I may have discovered since or, or that my background knowledge tells me is probably very important? Um, and then I try and weave that in and seed seed that through and sometimes it's going to be like the example i gave you that you need to understand that you know there is a there is a village nearby where things are going on that the official inquiry and the police aren't talking about but we you really need to know about if you're going to understand the end of it but other times to give an example of another case which is not really a spoiler because i won't i won't tell you what it is but suffice to say that um an american judge was sent to china to judge an American accused of murder um, uh, in what was called a bench trial, so no jury. The judge hears the, the arguments for defence and prosecution and then makes a decision, which could lead to um, the man being imprisoned for life or even, in this case, actually hanged. Um, and the case goes all the way through to the end, and it was only at the end that I discovered that the one thing that neither the man accused of murder or the judge that tried him for murder uh, both neglected to mention that five years before in America they had known each other. Now, in 1937, in a northern Chinese city, how does a journalist who even suspects this might be the case prove that? But of course what I do is I go to the newspaper archives, I take this rather obscure story that I've come across and reconstructed, I put both men's names into the database and up come a whole load of stories about the time of the trial and I need all of those stories because they're crucial to reconstructing the events of of the trial and what came out but then I noticed there's one story from five years before from an from a from a small regional American newspaper and I just think well I better open it and see what it is and it is the report of a dinner at an Elks Society you know one of these sort of charitable societies in America in Albuquerque in the local newspaper there, and these two men sat next to each other at a dinner of, t of only 12 men, so they couldn't have not known each other. Now, six years later, one judges the other for murder, wow. right? But neither of them tell that. That clearly would have been a mistrial, and that trial could not have happened in that way uh, if, um, if that information had been known. But there was no way to find that information in, um, in 1937. But now... Literally, you know, punching two names into a database, it comes back instantly. And lastly, you spoke earlier about the style that you're writing. You know, it's this, it's uh, the 
early 1900s and the 20s and the 30s. So this is noir. Mm. As the teller of a story, not as an academic, as, as the actual writer of this story that you want people to stay engaged with, how are you putting across the style? What are you doing with your words? What are you doing with the narrative voice to make this engaging? Well, one of the things I think is quite interesting about nonfiction, and one of the reasons uh, about historical nonfiction, and one of the reasons I like reading it uh, as well as writing it, is if it's done very well, to, to my mind, um, it's about as close to time travel as you can get. Right? If you can take someone back to that, that moment, either you know, them listening to you with their headphones on, hopefully switching off the rest of the world, or reading a book, ignoring everything that's going on around them. And part of the way of doing that, I think, is not just to recreate in the text or, or, or the narration what people are wearing, what cars they're driving, what the world looks like at that time, you know, but also the language that people are speaking, the rhythms that they're using. The 1930s and 1940s is, to me, a very noir time. The stories I'm telling are, with the exception of one or two, take place in modern cities like Shanghai that are full of neon and jazz and fast cars and gangsters and, and elevators and telephones. They're modern cities they are very noir cities in the sense of if you take the uh, the idea of noir as all of us together in this city but all alienated um you know from each other and so on this is this is that times 10 in somewhere like shanghai where the many of the people i'm writing about come from all different places to a city that is nothing like the rest of the country that it happens to be in and where most of the population is chinese and and from a completely different culture and background to you. So the most noir city on earth, I would argue, much more so than Los Angeles at that time. So um, the idea that you can convey that moment in history through, through writing styles that were popular at that time, I think is, is, is sort of interesting. And I, I went, while I was writing these ones, and for some other work I'm doing at the moment, which, which several of these are in the 1940s, and, and I'm working on a project at the moment it's in the 1940s, I've sort of been rereading Raymond Chandler and I think when you want to write in a certain style this is an important thing to do and when you want to get the feel for a period you have to read those writers of the period who were so good and and reading Chandler you know really uh, I feel connects me to 1940s Los Angeles and so I'm thinking you know that writing style which is so specific to that time you know it's, it's even specific to that moment in American capitalism if you read Chandler all the stories are about bumping someone off really, to advance your inheritance, right? It, it's like, I, I, I don't want to kill someone in order to take over their casino or their drug business, which would be sort of another period in time. This is like, I need to bump off the relative who's got all the money so that I inherit and never have to work a day in my life. Right? That's what Chandler's all about. And um, the way he describes that world between people who work and people who don't and people who are rich and people who aren't is sort of... and. and people who all live in Los Angeles but don't really know each other and don't really understand each other's backgrounds seems to me so of the moment that if I can capture some of the essence of that literary style, it will help take the listener back or the reader back to that period, um, which, which may or may not work. Again, you know, you look at your Amazon comments and hopefully most people like it, but occasionally people will say it grates on them, you know, much, much the way as my voice may grate on them, but there's just, I'm afraid there's nothing I can do about that. 
And that is it for this week's episode of Writer's Routine with Paul French. You can download and have a listen to his brand new Audible series, Murders of Old China, right now. And just thank you so much to Paul for taking time away from the library to tell me all about his process and his stories. If you enjoyed what you've heard today, if you've learned anything that you think might change the way that you tell your stories, maybe it's helped you with research, maybe it's helped you with planning and formatting your stories as if you were telling 12 separate uh, snippets for audiobooks, anything like that, please do support the show over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. If you don't fancy that just yet, it's okay. You can do what you can by leaving us a review over on the Apple Podcast Store, just telling someone that you know that you think might be interested in what we're talking about. If you're part of the writer community on Twitter. Uh, I'd love for you to point people our way. I know that you have been doing that, but it's always worth doing it more. If you could point people our way, that'd be amazing. Uh, Give us a follow on Twitter to do that as well. It's at writerspod. You can find everything that we're up to as well over at writersroutine.com. Now, next week, we're taking a look at a book set in World War One, kind of traveling back through time. It's called uh, The Photographer of the Lost. It's said to be perfect if you loved The Tattooist of Auschwitz. If you really can love a book like The Tattooist of Auschwitz, I mean, I get that it's amazing, but is it a book that you... Anyway, let's not get into that discussion now. Um, Caroline Scott is the author of Photographer of the Lost, uh, and she'll be on this show telling us all about it next week. I'll see you then. Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.